You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pop quiz listeners, what's a niggly wiggly? You've seen hundreds, maybe even thousands of them in your lifetime. We'll have the answer at the end of the show. The human body has a thousand different parts, and most of those have at least one name. Many of us know our shoulder blades are also called scapula, but what's that area in between them? That maddening spot in the middle of your back that you can never reach to scratch? That's your acnesis. It's slightly below your nidic, or the nape of your neck. Why don't we take it from the top, in today's list of things you didn't know had names. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you've got a single curl on your forehead like Superman, you can show off your feet, F-E-A-T. It's just above your glabella, the space between your eyebrows. The squishy pink corner of your eye is your caruncula. Hop over the nose and you're on to the philtrum, that vertical groove between the base of the nose and the upper lip. Slide down the arm and you'll come to the weenus, the unofficial official name for the skin you can pinch away from your elbow. And a special hello to this reporter's husband, who will never not find that word funny, apparently. If you look on the underside of your wrist, the parallel wrinkles there are called rosquetta. When you make an L with your forefinger and thumb, the skin in between is a pearly cue. Down to the end of your fingers and the little white half-moons called, fittingly, lunules. Do you have a second toe that's longer than your big toe? The official name for this is Morton's toe, which is considerably more flattering than the old-timey term turkey toe. Count over three and you'll come to your minimus, the term for your little toe that also applies to your pinky finger. Here's a question. We call our fifth toe a pinky toe, but why don't we call our big toe a thumb toe? While science comes up with an answer for that, we can call it by its other name, the hollux. If you're getting shoes fitted, you'll be spending time with a Brannock device. That's the name of the strangely identical metal contraption in seemingly every shoe store. It was invented by Charles Brannock, the son of a shoe industry entrepreneur in 1925 and has been the industry standard ever since. We all know that shoes have tongues, but did you know they have throats as well? That's the section on the front top adjacent to the toe cap. The rest of that piece is called the vamp. While your shoes are protecting your feet, you can thank plastic or metal aglets for protecting the end of your shoelaces from unraveling. Shoes can't protect you from getting pins and needles from sitting cross-legged, 
In fact, they probably contribute to your paresthesia. Paresthesia usually follows numbness or abdermission. It's important to get up and move, though that's hard for folks who experience dysania, the state of finding it hard to get out of bed in the morning. So, most of us. Pull on your pants and stuff your arms into their respective arm size or the armholes of your shirt. In the bathroom, you'll want to get yourself a nice little nurdle of toothpaste. Pro tip, you only need as much toothpaste as covers the bristles crosswise. All the commercials show a long strip of toothpaste going lengthwise, not only because it looks better, but because it causes you to use more toothpaste faster and have to buy more sooner. You'd better get something to eat. Your stomach's starting to womble. That's a much cuter name for the noises of the digestive system than the medical term borborygmus, though that is fun to say. At the opposite end of the spectrum, when your belly is overstuffed with food and drink, you might find yourself suffering with aptly named crapulence. What kind of day will it be when you get outside? If the sun is streaming through the clouds looking like a painting, you can stop and marvel at the crepuscular rays. Maybe it's clear and cold and you can throw yourself on the mercy of apricity, the warmth from the sun. If it's been warm and dry and then it rains, you might be treated to the singular scent of petrichor, the pleasant smell of rain on a hot surface. The word has Greek components, Petra for stone and ikor for the blood of the gods, for whatever reason, but it was actually assembled fairly recently. The word first appeared in the research paper of Australians Isabel Baer and Richard Thomas in 1964 entitled Nature of Agracilious Odor, which is somewhat less pretty than petrichor. If it's raining heavily, you can stay in and enjoy chrysalism, the tranquility of being inside during a thunderstorm. Look up at the clouds when the rain stops and you may see one that resembles a race car, a teddy bear, or a fish on roller skates. If so, you're experiencing pareidolia, the tendency to see objects in random patterns. The word actually means seeing objects of any sort, though many people use pareidolia to refer to seeing faces specifically, such as the man in the moon. Some Asian cultures have folklore regarding a rabbit in the moon. Give it a Google when you get the chance. If, instead of seeing faces in places, you see butts, such as a plump tomato or a pronouncedly dimpled chin, those objects are natiform, or resembling buttocks. Don't rub your eyes too hard in disbelief, though, or you'll end up seeing phosphines, those sparks or blobs of light that occur when the retina is stimulated by pressure rather than light. If you stop for a cup of coffee, be sure to recycle your zarf. It sounds like a Batman punching sound effect, but it's actually the name for the cardboard sleeve that keeps your fingers safe from scalding coffee. Better yet, bring your own cup. Four billion single-use coffee cups wind up in landfills each year just from the Starbucks chain. And don't get me started on the 500 million plastic straws we throw away every single day, or the fact that we recycle less than a quarter of plastic bottles. Definite room for improvement there. 
Coffee shops are usually full of chatter, maybe even anecdote, conversations in which everyone's talking and nobody's listening. Of course, if you walked in and the place was deserted, you might be overcome with canopsia, the eerie, forlorn atmosphere of a place that's usually bustling but is now empty. When you're not in your regular coffee shop, you may experience monocopsis, the feeling of being out of place. Personally, I prefer immersing myself in velicor, the strange wistfulness of used bookshops. The smell of old books comes from the breakdown of hundreds of volatile organic compounds that make up the paper, ink, and adhesive. As soon as a Kindle can replicate that smell, I'll buy one. A bookstore is also a nice, quiet place to have a joska, a hypothetical conversation with other people that you practice in your head. Full disclosure, that is a Polish word. We'll cover words that other languages have that English desperately needs in a later episode. Words like kummerspeck, the German word for weight gained from emotional eating, which is literally grief bacon. At least in bookshops over coffee shops, you don't have to listen to other people eating. But let's be honest, why say chew when you can say masticate? The aversion to hearing others masticate is a common form of misophonia, literally hatred of sound, a condition in which negative emotions, thoughts, and physical reactions are triggered by specific noises. Think nails on a chalkboard, a poorly played bagpipe, or vagitis, which is not what it sounds like, though it is tangentially related. Vagitis is the crying of a newborn baby, that keening goat-like sound that holds no appeal for some of us. The best place to be in control of such things is home sweet home, which is also on the short list of places where you can indulge in accumbation or eating while reclined on a sofa like the ancient Romans. Maybe you'll have a few friends over. Initiate the scurry funge. That's the frantic, frenetic, haphazard, and hopeless mad dash clean before your company comes. Be certain to wipe down your muntins. That's the name for the strips of wood that separate panes of glass on your windows. If you really want to impress your party guests, try opening a bottle of champagne with a saber. Just be sure you're holding it securely with a thumb in its punt. That's the indent on the bottom. And don't forget to take off the agriff, the little wire cage that holds the cork on. Before you do, take a second and check out the eulage, or the airspace between the top of the liquid and the top of the bottle. It's going to foam up on you. If it were beer instead of champagne, you'd call that the barm. When you gather around those pizzas you ordered, Keep an eye out for anyone who doesn't eat their cornichon, or the outer crust of the pizza. We should probably balance that out with some fruit. Just be wary of the phloem bundles, the little stringies that you have to pick off your banana. And be sure you only choose raspberries with the plumpest droplets, which is the name for the individual orbs of juicy goodness that make up raspberries and blackberries. Every group of friends seems to have one person who suffers from anamoya, or nostalgia for a past they didn't actually live through. You know, the sort of person who says, I was born in the wrong decade. When you meet someone like that, point out that until 80 years ago, 
toilet paper had bark and splinters in it. Then hand them a piece of pizza, which was considered an ethnic food a hundred years ago. It was 1927 before a recipe was printed in an American cookbook for the tomato and mozzarella version we know today. Bonus fact, pizza by the slice was first sold by Lombardi's in New York City. Since many people couldn't afford the cost of a whole pie, they would instead say how much they could afford and were given a proportionate piece. Is the list starting to get to you? You're probably ready to defenestrate your music player, which means to throw it out the window. Don't let me back you into a corner. I don't want you to feel like you're in a zugzwang, a situation in which the obligation to make a move is a serious disadvantage. Nobody puts my listener in a corner. Maybe you're concerned that you've misheard some of these new words. Don't worry, I for one have a terrible time making out lyrics when I'm listening to music. My brain is full of mondegreens, like, excuse me while I kiss this guy, and there's a bathroom on the right. The term mondegreen for misheard lyrics was coined by author Sylvia Wright. As a child, she heard the Scottish ballad, The Bonnie Earl of Murray, which contains the line, Oh, where ha ye been? They ha slain the Earl of Murray and laid him on the green. But Wright heard they have slain the Earl of Murray and Lady Mondegreen. When she learned the truth later that there was no tragic heroine in the poem at all, Wright commemorated her with this neologism, the term for new words or phrases. A Mondegreen is not exactly the same as an eggcorn. An eggcorn is when your version is at least similar in meaning to the original version. Usually it involves homophones, like toe the line with T-O-W instead of T-O-E, or saying the point is moot. My favorite example of this is the Stevie Nicks song, Edge of Seventeen, which came from her misunderstanding Tom Petty's wife saying they had met at the age of seventeen. The term itself is even a mishearing of the word acorn. If the new version has nothing to do with the original, like saying the pineapple of success rather than the pinnacle, that's a malaproism. You can also have fun with spoonerisms, where you swap the beginnings of words, like saying Cinderella slopped her dripper. They get their name from Reverend William Archibald Spooner, who was famous for doing this, saying things in his sermons like, the Lord is a shoving leopard. I would turn up every Sunday front row center for that. Check out the Shel Silverstein book Runny Babbitt for a heaping helping of spoonerisms. Did you know that Silverstein wrote the Johnny Cash song A Boy Named Sue? There's even video of them performing it together. But it's weird. Silverstein's speaking voice is what his singing voice should sound like and vice versa. Also, he looks like a hobo serial killer. There, I've said it. I'd love his books, but flip them over to the picture on the back and tell me I'm lying. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. If you prefer things in a more visual medium, comic strips have given us a way to swear in writing without actually swearing. That string of punctuation that stands in for your favorite four-letter words is called a Grawlix. It was created by Rudolf Dirks, whose Cats and Jammer Kids strips debuted all the way back in 1897. The Grawlix first appeared in December 1902, but the name didn't come to light until 1964, courtesy of an interview with Beetle Bailey creator Mort Walker. If your character is particularly angry, and you want the reader to know they are shaking with rage, throw in a few agitrons. These are the wavy lines drawn around cartoon characters to show that they're shaking. If there's a specific term for stink lines, I haven't found it yet. One of the symbols we usually see in a Grawlix is a hashtag or pound sign or Octothorpe. You'll probably see a question mark and exclamation point, but if you combine them into one character, you've got an interrobong. It's essential for expressing incredulity or for asking rhetorical questions, but sadly there's no easy way to type it on most systems. Typing's a safer bet if you've got griffinage like mine, which is to say, terribly messy handwriting. When I get to scribbling, it's hard to dot every I and cross every T, or rather, to use my tittles and jots. Spellcheck also helps me catch missing apthongs, or silent letters in words. English is lousy with them, like the GH in night. If you think about the word Q, as in a line or to stand in line, it could be said to be 80% apthongs. Everyone loves a palindrome, a word or phrase that reads the same forward as backwards. Things like race car, taco cat, and rise to vote sir. When you spell a word backwards and get a new separate word, like reversing stressed into desserts, that's a Samorna lap. Samorna lap is just palindrome backwards. Stressed and desserts definitely sound like opposites, but some words are their own opposite. The word cleave means to split apart or to adhere to. Left can mean departed or remains. Those are contronyms, also called Janus words, after the Greek god with a face on each side of his head. A brief aside, the word caregiver, 
and caretaker mean the same thing. English. Feel like this is going on forever? Better draw a lemniscate. That's the name of the sideways eight of the infinity symbol. If you simply want to divide this into smaller parts, draw an obelisk, the dot line dot division symbol from grade school. One of the most fun things to learn about as a kid were animals. I could have done an entire episode with only the different terms for male, female, and baby animals, but the most amazing lexicon is with groups of animals. An assembly of ferrets is a business. Multiple lemurs make a conspiracy, though they're probably just conspiring to move it, move it. Otters come in romps. Squirrels form a scurry. A group of monkeys can be called, I kid you not, a barrel. If you find yourself in a prickle, you're surrounded by porcupines. Ever wonder how they mate without somebody getting hurt? They approach the situation in the same stance as most mammals, and the female flips her tail over her back to cover her quills. Three or more goats and you've got yourself a trip. They're a trip indeed. Do it with ponies and it's a string. A group of donkeys is a pass, and I can't help but feel like we missed the chance to call it an assload of donkeys. We have many names for groups of domestic cats, your choice of which probably evinces your opinion of them. A clowder, clutter, pounce, doubt, nuisance, glorying, or glare of cats. Kittens specifically can be called a kindle. There's the well-known murder of crows, which sounds more serious than an unkindness of ravens. Bats gathered together in cauldrons. Buzzards circling around are part of a wake. A group of ducks on the water are a raft or a paddling. Group of ducks? That's a paddling. When hawks are in the air, they're a kettle. As soon as they start spiraling through the air, they're a boil. Your spirits could be lifted by an exaltation of larks. Magpies, those bicolored birds with mythical symbolism and a penchant for stealing shiny things, can be referred to as a tiding or a charm. Our talkative friends the parrots are a pandemonium, and peafowl are an ostentation. Turkeys come in gangs, which makes sense if you ever met one, but again I feel we missed the opportunity to call them something like a platter or a gravy of turkeys. Little starlings form poetic-sounding groups called murmurations. Seagulls are naturally called a screech. Woodpeckers are a descent, or as they're more commonly called, Are you freaking kidding me? It's 5.30 in the morning! How can woodpeckers bang their faces against trees all day without pulverizing their little bird brains? Their tongues are so long, they can actually wrap around behind the brain and cushion it against contra-coup injuries, or the injuries sustained when the brain hits the side of the skull opposite the initial impact. Many owls form a parliament, and you can form a congress of baboons. The Jungle Book was right, elephants come in a parade. When you get giraffes together, you've got a tower. Bonus fact, 
Giraffes have the same number of neck vertebrae as you and I, but they're much, much bigger. Jaguars form a shadow, which sounds so cool, but not as cool as an ambush of tigers. And yes, tigers will sometimes hunt humans, but usually only if they're too old to catch anything that can run worth a damn. Also, we did take their habitat and ground them up into quack medicine, so kind of deserved it. Rhinos form a crash, and hippos are a thunder, or a bloat. Depends on whether you've been standing too close to one when they had a poo. Cheetahs form coalitions, and camels come in caravans, naturally. A cackle is a group of hyenas. It's okay if you get excited about zebras, since they come in a zeal. The award for the very best name for a group of African animals goes to the GNU, as their collective noun is an implausibility. Their North American cousin, the bison, comes in a close second with an obstinacy of bison. Cockroaches are an intrusion, and mosquitoes are a scourge. Big surprise, malaria has killed more humans than any other cause ever. Grasshoppers, those relatives of the locust, come in clouds. On the nicer side of insects, butterflies can collectively be called a kaleidoscope or a rainbow. You can also have a loveliness of ladybugs, or ladybirds, depending on where you live. Don't be tempted to call just any group of bees you see a swarm. While it can technically be true, it tends to make people nervous. It invokes the news stories of Africanized killer bees ready to take over the USA, or the end of the movie My Girl. In actuality, a true swarm of bees poses the least threat to you. Bees swarm when their hive has grown too crowded. They raise a second queen and about half of them leave. The swarm then looks for a new place to live. Since they don't have a home yet, they have nothing to defend, nothing to lay down their little bee lives for. For bees, swarming is simply house hunting. You would think rattlesnakes were shaking maracas since they form a rumba. Cobras come in quivers, which is what I would do if I saw more than one cobra. If a cobra or any other snake has king in its name, that means it eats other snakes. Two or more toads are a knot, but a few frogs are an army. Take a quick break for a battle toads nostalgia. Herrings also come in armies, and barracudas come in battalions. When you're done shivering at the cobras, you can take on a shiver of sharks or a fever of stingrays. Squids must be good listeners since their collective term is audience. A group of jellyfish is a bloom or a smack. Whales can come in gams, which is odd since they don't have legs. Bed can refer both to where clams and oysters live and the groups of the bivalves themselves. Crabs comprise consortiums, but lobsters are a risk. If you'll bear with me, I want to tell a good, bad old joke. One day, a boy crab falls in love with a girl lobster. And this is an interspecies thing, they know it's going to be difficult, 
and he knows he needs to make a good impression on her family when he finally meets them. So for weeks he practices walking forward. No sideways scuttling for him, just learning to walk forward. And the big day comes, and he's going up to the lobster's house, walking forward as hard as he can. The father lobster looks out the window and says, Here comes that crab, and he's drunk. Hey, I liked it. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Our quiz question from the top of the show was, What is a niggly wiggly? A niggly wiggly is the little paper flag that sticks out of the foil on a Hershey Kiss. Milton Hershey added it to the product to distinguish the real deal from the imitations that were popping up on the market. Speaking of flags, the flag on the map that tells you you are here is the ideal locator. Okay, that was 73 new words for you, 142 if you count the animal ones. So I think I'm going to go lay down for a while. But will I be prone on my belly or supine on my back? We'll see when I get to the couch. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word peen. Peen. That's the non-striking side of a hammer, by the way. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.